Calling all Blue Blazer regulars. Time to fire up your jet cars, hydraulically press your watermelons, and oscillate your overthrusters as the Illuminati's Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Strategic Information brings you 1984's The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension! Exclamation point. Which is a hell of a long title. It really is. Uh, don't know what any of that I just said means? Well, fear not. We are here to walk you through it. I am Perfect Kelly Powers. I'm just regular Brent Phillips. <laughs> With me is Brent Big Booty Phillips. <laughs> Big Boutet, do you prefer? Boutet. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Uh... Yeah, we're going to be talking about Buckaroo Banzai today, which is, it's my cult film. Your I got favorite? this, I have this theory that everybody just kind of leans towards one particular cult film, and it's different for different people, mm-hmm. and there's so many to choose from. I mean, some people are like Rocky Horror Picture fans, and some people are huge Monty Python fans, which I also love. Uh, I mean, I'll watch Holy Grail anytime you give me the opportunity. <laughs> Uh, but this one's mine. Have you ha- had you ever seen Buckaroo Banzai before? I had not. This was it. Had you heard of it? I mean, specifically from you. Okay. <laughs> well, there it is. I've never heard of it from like pop culture. Really? No. Wow. Okay. No, only you and Alice are my only sources of information. And on see, that is sort of another aspect of the cult film, is that not everyone's going to have heard of it. In fact. It's almost more prestigious as a cult film if less people know about it. Well, then this should be very prestigious. <laughs> it's highly prestigious. It is the cultiest film I've ever seen. Yeah, I would say that is a very good description of the movie. It's extremely culty. It, it's almost as though it was specifically designed to be a cult film. Yeah, when like I'm not even sure that was a thing at the time, right. but man, did they like they had like a checklist and they're like, okay, <laughs> actors that are in the future are going to be super popular but are being super weird right now, right. check. Just totally incomprehensible plot, check. Dialogue pretty, pretty, that is it, yeah, off the wall but imminently quotable. Yeah, very obtuse dialogue, very quotable, check. Great soundtrack, check. Aliens dimensions, check. And, let's not forget uh, the looks of characters that can be easily recreated for various costume parties. Mm-hmm. Check. It really does tick the boxes. Uh, yeah, and it meets all those requirements. I, I first um, heard of this movie. You mentioned our mutual friend, Alice. Alice is who introduced me to this movie. And I remember one day we were hanging out uh, in her apartment. This was back when she, uh, she was in, in New York. And we were hanging out, and uh, and she had a VHS copy of this film. I don't even know how we started watching it, but she said, "Oh, you got to see this movie. You'll love this movie." And we started watching it, and it was the most amazing, weird WTF movie I'd ever watched in my life. I, I was just like, "What? What is this?" So you didn't see it in the eighties either. No. Hmm. Nope. And I remember as I watched it, I I had no idea who was in it when I was watching it, and and. You know, I immediately recognized uh, Peter Weller as the guy from RoboCop. And I'm like, oh, hey, it's RoboCop. But then they just kept showing up on the screen. All these people that you're like, I know him. I know her. I know him, him, her. It was, they were just, it was like a a who's who of young Hollywood of, I guess, early 80s. Yeah. And it was amazing. And I was just like, wow, to, to think that they were all in one place for this weird script because everybody starts somewhere, and it's not like they were like, 
chomping at the bit to do this script. Like, hey, I, you know, I'm a hot deal now in Hollywood, and I have to do this. Well, that's the, that's the thing I started thinking about, and I really should have researched it or had the boys do it. But like, wasn't John Lithgow a star by then? What's he doing in this movie? <sighs> He's doing a, an Italian accent that is off the <laughs> it's rails. the most bananas thing ever. It's amazing. Um, and it God, wasn't like The Fly near this time too, or was that later? I don't know when The Fly was, but I'm pretty sure The Fly was after this. Um, and I mean, he, it's gotta be for him to be cast as... Well, like Goldblum, what he had done previous to this movie, Jeff Goldblum, uh, he had done the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, okay. Which was pretty, kinda... it was pretty big. It was like a, it was like a, uh, I mean, they didn't really have, um, big budget box office movies at that time. That wasn't really a huge summer ticket. There, there was probably less, um, since so many more movies were made in general, there's sure. probably a lot less, uh, oh, I'm too big a star to do this. It's a, what are we doing today? Yeah, I, I would say that's probably you know? right. The other thing is the the studio that made this, this little outfit called Sherwood Studios, was a little outfit. It wasn't like this yeah. was some major production company. This was a small, you know, labor of love. And it, you know, to the movie's credit, it doesn't feel low budget. No, even though it definitely is low budget. It feels uneven to me, and I'll tell you as we go along later what's what's uneven about it to mm-hmm. me, but it feels like it feels like uh, it feels like a well well uh, managed budget. Like they didn't try to do too much that wouldn't work until you get to like the very end. But well, like, let me just tell you what what led to the script of this movie and it, and it kind of explains why it might feel a little uneven. So, the the guy who wrote this uh, this movie, Earl McRouch is his name. Writer Earl McRouch, and he'd done some screenwriting before, but um, he wrote the movie and uh, was uh, directed by W.D. Richter. And Earl McRouch hadn't really done movie scripts too much prior to Buckaroo Banzai. He'd, he'd written novels. He wrote a novel uh, that the director and the director's girlfriend read and loved, and that's why they invited him to come out to Hollywood and try punching out a script. For yeah, him. okay. Because uh, that's just the way things work back then. It's like, hey, I liked that hey, one thing that you wrote. and come, hey, come down here for two weeks and bang out a script? Not or? only that, yeah. They put him up, like, at their house. He came out there, he stayed for a few months, and they paid him to work on a script or two. That's just how it worked. Like, come on out, see see how it feels. So he did that. And the, what he did was he would he would start writing a script for the for the movie. And he knew he wanted to be about, about this character. Um, and he started writing a script about... The character, I believe, like what they had, they had all different names, and they all sound amazingly interesting. Like their names, like the first one that I think he punched out was called "Find the Jet Car," said the president, a Buckaroo Banzai adventure. Because <laughs> uh, he loved those long titles that worked in. Yes. Um, another one was called "The Strange Case of Mister Cigars," a Buckaroo Banzai adventure. This sounds like uh, kind of like pulp novels. Very much like pulp novels. And you see a lot of pulp novel influence later on. Like, his, like Booker Rabanzai's entire crew, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, they're all very much like uh, something that you would read in Doc Savage. You know, like Doc Savage in the comics would surround himself with these incredible weird characters that had goofy names. Like, like the Monk and Remy and, you know, <laughs> Little Joe and stuff like that. And, yeah. and 
And Bakarubanzai surrounds himself with like, you know, particle physicists and musicians and neurosurgeons, but they have names like New Jersey and Perfect Tommy and Perfect. Reno Nevada. <laughs> and and it's exactly like that. It's very pulp, very much like like, like that uh, genre pulp. So anyway, uh, McRouch would he wrote these scripts, but he would start writing them. He'd get kind of bored and distracted, or he had too many ideas, and he'd stop. And he'd put what he'd written so far in a drawer, and he'd start over completely from scratch and do a completely different story. And he'd stop, and he'd put that in the drawer, and then he'd start... He did this for like 30 scripts before he punched one all the way through to the end. Okay. And then as they were producing this movie, he took all the old scripts that he had, and he put them into like a... I guess you could refer to it as a Bible for, for Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, the world. Right. And so everything that he'd ever conceived of as being possible for the history of this character and the, and, and the people who are in his life was all in this Bible. But a lot of it, like, contradicted it, itself and, and, like, it's all very disjointed and he would be like, well, yeah, he was a physicist and he was a neurosurgeon and he was a race car driver and he was a master martial artist and he would... And so everything ended up being just, like, it reads like seven or eight or nine different stories have been crammed into one thing. Yeah. Because seven or eight or nine different stories have been crammed We're into one crammed thing. In, yeah. And I find that fascinating because somehow he actually got the green light to go ahead and do this. Yeah, that's the most surprising thing is that this actually got made. Uh, I agree. The but odds of this. It's such a mess. I mean, I guess had had I never met you, I would never know it existed. But like... You know, this is not like a, like I said, it doesn't feel low budget. It's not just like an, an indie, everyone's just getting coked out of their minds and making a movie thing. Like, <laughs> some actual production value went into this. There's real actors in it. And like, like it, it, you know, it's that like mid-level budget thing that doesn't exist anymore. Not only did a, a, a budget and production value go into this, but... One of your favorite movies that you've previously talked about on this podcast as being one of your favorite movies, uh, Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. um, the cinematographer in Blade Runner was Jordan Cronenworth. And he has a very signature style, that sort of dark, noir... Uh, the old slow pan. Mm -hmm. yeah. And everything's very dark and, and there's like a, you know... Every room you walk into, someone's been smoking a cigarette too long because it's, there's always <laughs> it's that a, yeah, hazy. low level of haze in the and it's you see that totally it makes it easier to see the lasers. Yeah, you see that totally in some scenes because he worked for about half the production of this movie before he was fired <laughs> and replaced, and they filmed the rest of it without him. And he doesn't even get a credit. For yeah, that guy was a no talent hack. Yeah. Get him out of there. Yeah, he gets no no credit whatsoever. But he did like half the movie before they they gave him they showed him the door. That's funny. I like a, the treasure trove of uh, historic Buckaroo Banzai information you contain. Well, it's just like everyone in Hollywood was in some way involved <laughs> with this movie. <laughs> like, uh, And, you know, I had the boys in the lab do a little you know, preliminary rundown for me. as I That was very do. nice of them. It is. Um, well, I mean, we've talked and talked. Let's, let's talk about the actual film. Oh, let's do it. The story itself. Uh, the version that that you and I watched, that I made us watch. Yeah, so what's extra? You said there's only like the one. Extended. There's only one thing that's extra in this entire extended edition. And I just kept it because of one reason only, really. The only thing that's extra is the very, very opening scene. 
That is not in the thing with his the mom theater. and dad. The thing with his mom and dad. The home movie. It was in no way related to anything at right. all. Okay, got it. <laughs> so, I should preface this by saying that, um, as I said, I am a, a big fan of the movie, but I sort of became like, I got like really into it. Like when I love something, I get really into it. So yeah, it makes it's, you know, it's fun to do. It. I know so much about Marvel comics and DC comics. I know so much about like various Star Trek shows. I know so I just. I go whole in. Um, so when I loved this movie, I um, Alice again got me the book, the actual novelization that Earl. So McGraw, the novelization of the movie. He wrote a book that it says it's the novelization of the movie, but you get the impression that he wrote it like as a separate entity. Oh, kind of like uh, two thousand one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he wrote wrote both. He wrote How's the, the book? It's exactly it's exactly the same kind of madness, but they elaborate on some things that, in the movie, you're just left to scratch your head and wonder what was that about. They elaborate on them in the book, and they make a lot more sense in the book. Oh, interesting! Because actually, I felt exactly the same way about two thousand one. Is okay. that like in the movie that Kubrick definitely leaves some shit out, and like you're just left to like, hmm, what did he mean by this scene? And then you read the book, and, and you're like, oh. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that between the book. And then I also had, uh, I have a Hong Kong Cavaliers concert tour t-shirt. I have a nice. Buckaroo Banzai uh, bandana that he wears in the jet car test. I, I, it's not the bandana. It's a, this is um, something that. get you the jet car. Yeah, know. seriously. This and is something that. neurosurgeon degree. They were giving out at a, um, uh, a Comic-Con or something uh, years and years ago as a promotional item to promote the movie. They had the bandana, the, the Buckaroo Banzai head bandanas that they were just handing out to people. Like, they do <laughs> lots of promotional stuff at Comic-Con. Yeah. Um, so I got that, and uh, and I read the book. And so the reason I made us watch the extended version is because I know some things from the book that make more sense and that the extended intro scene references. So the intro scene is um, just a whole movie, and it's narrated by this guy who you'll find out later is Buckaroo's best friend, sort of first lieutenant of the Hong Kong Cavaliers, uh, this guy called Rawhide, mm-hmm. who listeners would recognize uh, if you've ever watched Highlander, Rawhide was the Kurgan, the bad guy in Highlander, the one who's constantly... I forgot that he was that in Highlander. He, he's a, in a ton of stuff. He's in a ton of stuff, but I always know him as the Kurgan. That's He'll always be the Kurgan to me. And he was awesome in that role. He was epic as that villain. I just always remember him in that scene in the Highlander when when he's he's hanging out in the church talking to McLeod and the nuns are there and he's like in his leather biker outfit and he's man we might need to do Highlander we should this. and he looks at the the nuns and goes happy Halloween ladies <laughs> <laughs> he's the best but he plays uh, he plays Rawhide and he's narrating the movie uh, the the whole movie it's uh, Buckaroo's like five years old and they're showing him with the parents and the reason I wanted to watch it was well twofold one. His mom, who though she gets no line and gets and gets no love in the theatrical release because the whole thing ended up on the cutting room floor, but his mom is played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, which amazed me. You can barely tell though. I don't know. I could kind of tell. I mean, <laughs> I recognize. I'm just saying, like, if, if I if you hadn't told me before we watched it, I never would have noticed. Oh yeah, yeah maybe. it's so low quality, and then like she's so young and her hair's so big and like she's yeah yeah fine. okay fair enough. And so you see, like, Jamie Lee Curtis plays his mom, and he has a dad, and you find out that the two of them are scientists, and they're they're both trying to break the dimensional barrier as early back as, like, 
fork or something like that. Yeah. Um, although they, we find out later that this was the second attempt to breach the dimensional barrier. The first one happening in 1938. But this one was 1954. His parents are killed before they even get a chance to try their jet car because a bomb explodes that was placed under his dad's driver's seat. And the voiceover from Rawhide tells you that this was placed there by none other than the infamous Hanoi Jan. <laughs> now, in the movie that showed the theatrical release, there's no other reference to Hanoi Jan at all. And you're, you're left to wonder, what, what are you talking about? Is it in the book? So in the book, you find out that Hanoi Jan is sort of, he's sort of this, the, the Moriarty to Buckaroo Banzai's Sherlock Holmes. But much older? Uh, I guess. Okay. He's sort of, the, you don't actually like see him in the book or, or hear him. He's just mentioned as this nefarious person who's always been trying to cause the world harm. And, and Buckaroo has sort of been thwarting him at his every turn. Okay. And he runs this outfit called the World Crime League, which is like <laughs> this giant, far-reaching mafia that goes all over the globe. Um, Hanoi Jan is basically McRouch was patterning him after a um, character you may remember from old uh, fiction, uh, Fu Manchu, Dr. Fu Manchu. Yeah. So he's basically that character stolen for these purposes. Okay. Um, and then, I mean, I know I said that the only difference between the theatrical release and the version we watched was that that one scene, but if you look at the deleted scenes, um, which I have, there's a deleted scene later on where somebody mistakes Warfin for Hanoi Jan. They think he's Hanoi Jan in disguise or something, and Warfin has no idea who they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, he was he was supposed to be like set up, and then if they were going to do Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League later on, yeah, they would have brought him in and had. Him was that the name of the one in the credits? Yeah, was the World Crime League? Okay. Um. Yeah, so it's it was just interesting to me. I, I like the idea of having a Moriarty to Buckaroo. I also, by the way, I love that name, Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, I don't even. I it's don't a even, very comic book name. It's a very comic book name, and you you know they tell you in the whole movie that they they named him Buckaroo because his dad was a big fan of the American West. That's sure. basically it. But uh, it's a great name. I think he had like six or seven different names as the scripts were being written up. It wasn't always a Buckaroo Banzai adventure. It was like. Buckaroo, Buckaroo Jones or you know whatever <laughs> um, but then the, the, the actual movie when it starts what what everyone else saw when the movie came out is the actual jet car test that's what we see the the scene that goes back and forth between the jet car and the operation in New Jersey where yeah. and you find out you're, you're confused right away because you're like is this guy doing neurosurgery and yes he is doing neurosurgery with Jeff Goldblum assisting in a hospital in New Jersey but then he leaves there via helicopter and lands at a test site somewhere in like... Really looks like Arizona or yeah. something. They say it's Texas, but it looks like Arizona to me. Still, those places are not close to each other. No. And then he gets into this test thing, this this jet car, which is actually a... Uh, I believe it was a Ford... I had the boys look this up. The jet car is a Ford F-350. Yeah, it was just a truck. With an actual GE turbo jet engine borrowed from Northrop University in California <laughs> and molded into the thing. And they actually took a cockpit from a fighter jet and they removed the, the, the front 
uh, seat section cab from the, yeah. from the truck, and they put in this cockpit. That's awesome. It is. It, I mean, it looked pretty good for the time. I thought it was a good sure. effect. Um, and you find out, you know, Buckaroo is, yes, he's a neurosurgeon, but he's also uh, a scientist and uh, a jet car enthusiast <laughs> um, and an inventor. Um, you find out later he's a rock star. Um, and everyone in the world, in this world, knows who Buckaroo Banzai is. He's like the most famous guy in the world. And I love throughout the movie, there's these little nods to just how well known he is. Um, like later on, he's he's off on his adventure, and oh, when his when his enemy escapes from uh, the Trenton home for the criminally insane or whatever it is, yeah. some of the inmates are playing a video game, a stand up arcade video oh, yeah, game at the door, the and the Buckaroo Banzai video game. game yeah. When aliens land in in New Jersey or wherever it is, and and they uh, and they fall out of their cockpit and they find the alien body rolled in his in the alien's coat pocket is. The latest issue of Buckaroo Banzai, the Marvel comic. <laughs> and I love that it was a Marvel comic because it's right up their alley that they would do Buckaroo Banzai. But yeah. He, he's got comic books. He's got video games. He's, he's touring. He's, he's franchising, man. Yeah. Um, Merchandising. Yeah. And so he breaks the sound barrier in this, this, this uh, jet car experiment and you find that he has found the way to, to cross over into the eighth dimension. Brent, do you know what the first seven dimensions are? Is this just crazy sci-fi? I'm sure they sci-fi? were just talking about string theory at the time. Yeah. And so this is... I tried to think, anywhere. do I know what the other dimensions are? I mean, I know you got the you know, length and width and height and depth and space in between are, and time. There are four to be... Yeah. That I, this movie would have been referencing. And then they just added a couple more. Okay. All right. Let's just assume that he knows what he's talking <laughs> about. Because I, Buckaroo must know. Um, he breaks the dimensional barrier. He's able to like drive his jet car straight up to a solid mountain of stone and pass through it unharmed because technically he's not going into the mountain. He's going into the space between the atoms of the mountain, which is this other dimensional world. And the way he does this is a device that he has perfected that uh, has been being worked on for quite some time by his mentor, Professor Akita. The oscillation overthruster, and when you first saw it, what did you say it looked exactly like? Oh, the uh, the Back to the Future thing. Yeah, the flux capacitor. Yeah, it's not so much that the oscillation overthruster looks like it, but no, the but thing that the housing plugs, for the it, thing yeah. that it plugs into and lights up when it when it is installed looks very much like the flux capacitor. There's no way whoever set up the flux capacitor hadn't seen this movie. So much so that um, I, like you, was thinking, well. They must have stolen that from Back to the Future, but they didn't because the around, yeah. this came out the year before Back to the Future. So maybe they, maybe somebody saw an early screening of Buckaroo and is like, maybe that they looks did some good. of the stuff on the same set, and they're like, hey, that's cool. Anything's possible. I mean, it's not like they copyrighted the fucking sci-fi housing of your weird device. Yeah. Um, so the test is a complete success, and that's an amazing scientific breakthrough. But what also uh, interests me is it gets no play whatsoever. The surgery he was performing was sounded really cool to me because what he was doing was he was implanting a small subcutaneous microphone into some guy's brain that would allow this guy who had some sort of nerve brain damage, it would allow him to give direct vocal commands to his own body. Oh, yeah, he could just say, walk forward. Yeah, he yeah. could say, you know, 
lift the harpoon. The guy he was operating on turned out to be an Eskimo. But he could say, <laughs> lift the harpoon or whatever it is, and, and just command himself to do it, even though his brain could not get his, mo- his, his body parts to move of their own accord. I thought, wow, that's an interesting concept. I mean, I medically, that's sure. a great Sure, why not? Why um, not? As long as you're jet-carring through atoms, I don't see why that <laughs> won't work. Um, and then, you know, when we, when we go to the uh, insane asylum where John Lithgow's character has seen this test happen on TV, John Lithgow in this movie is wearing horrible, ugly teeth and has this wild orange hair. And he is speaking with this off-the-rails Italian accent. <laughs> and he, he's playing a character who is... Uh, and he was a scientist himself. He tried to break the dimensional barrier himself, again, with Professor Akita back in, like, 1938. Um, Akita just keeps racking up the bodies behind him, yeah, trying to make this happen. Yeah, thanks a lot, Akita. And, and you think um, he's just this Italian guy who just maybe went insane, but no... When he tried to break the dimensional barrier, he got, like, halfway stuck, and he got this alien inside him. Yeah, that part was a little unclear. Like, was the alien burrowed into him, or yeah, just or mentally what? puppeteering him from the eighth Dunno. dimension? And, and uh, when Buckaroo went through the mountain, he, like, totally hit a bunch of aliens with his claw. Yeah, well, you see, when he goes through the mountain, you see, like, this... Like, vehicular manslaughter kind of stuff. You see, like, bodies just kind of floating in there. <laughs> And you find out later that John Lithgow's character, whose whose alien name is Lord John Warfen, um, all the Johns. They're all John. All the all the red electroids from the Eighth Dimension. Are... I just assumed that was a poor translation. Well, in the book, it says that John is like a uh, sir. It, yeah, it's like a it's like a, a title that they they take, and it just sounded like the the name John in English. Okay. Um, I don't know about small berries and uh, big booty. <laughs> Bootay! Um, but it says that, uh, I mean, even the movie tells us that John Warfin and his followers were from Planet 10 and were banished to the 8th Dimension. So from from that, I'm guessing they're not native to that weird void that Buckaroo passed through. Well, I thought they were banished to Earth. No, they escaped the 8th Dimension to Earth when Hakita and... Dr. Lazardo, who is John Lithgow's so, human so character. So more than one person came out when John, when half of John Lithgow was straddling dimensions. Right. But, and they went somewhere. Right. In 1938, Hikita and uh, uh, John Lithgow's human form, which was Dr. Emilio Lazardo, or did semi-pierce the membrane. Or did Lazardo do something later that brought the other people out? That is unclear. How all the other okay. Yoyodine employees came out? That was unclear. what I didn't figure. Okay. But that happened in 1938, and, and that was basically that opened the door and it allowed him to. He had a foot in the door, and he was able to widen it long enough for his followers to come out, and they were no longer imprisoned in the eighth dimension. To me, I always thought of the eighth dimension as being sort of phantom zony. Yeah, it like, looked that way. Very Kryptonian phantom zone. It's kind of this formless void. They're alive in there, and they're probably like functionally immortal in there, but they're not loving yeah, that it. That sucks. Yeah, they're just floating in nothingness and electrical discharges. Uh, whatever. Um, so Planet 10, I'm guessing, is not in the 8th dimension, but it's probably accessible. 6 through 7? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Uh, and so he, John Lithgow's character, escapes the insane asylum. He goes off to find his friends. Oh, wait, their planet has to be in a different dimension because Warfin needed the 
the oscillator to get back. He wanted to get back to planet 10, so maybe you can only get there right, I'm saying through the 8th dimension. Oh, yeah, maybe. He had to travel, yeah. use that as a yeah. conduit or something. Uh, he goes to find his friends at Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion Systems, which I love the name for that company. And this is the company that he and all his alien buddies set up when they escaped the 8th dimension and wound up on Earth in 1938. Yeah, I like that they set up shop and just started selling technology. It's like, why not? Yeah, and you find later, um, when you finally get to Yo-Yo Dime Propulsion Systems, they have all kinds of, like, these great signs and catchphrases out front of their factory. <laughs> like, uh, Yo-Yo Dime Propulsion Systems, the future begins tomorrow. <laughs> or, Yo-Yo Dime, a growing excited company. <laughs> and it also said, I wanted to see this, it also says in small print, I stopped it, it said, home of the tri-wing fighter. I'm like, what would the Tri-Wing fighter look like? Did that look like the... TIE Defender? I was going to think it maybe looked like the uh, Colonial Viper from Battlestar Galactica with the, the three fins, like the one on the yeah, top and two on the sides, maybe. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, the, the guys from Yo-Yo Dine, the aliens, Electroids, they're always, like, kind of off on their sayings and phrasings, especially uh, Lizardo slash Warfin. He, he, he says things like, Home is where you wear your hat. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, that's not quite right. It was a good try. It was a good try. Um, and then you go, you, you're over at, uh, suddenly you find yourself in, as an audience member, watching Buckaroo and his staff of physicists and surgeons and who knows what kind of scientists playing at this dive club in New Jersey. And you're like, what's going on here? But they are a a band that's just like doing dive clubs and I guess they just really like keeping it small so that no one tries to uh, no one knows where they're going to be next or something I just assume they're just permanently on tour and this is one of those Maybe. places in fact somebody does bring a gun to that show so it's probably a good idea that they're not announcing their tour dates too far in advance so yeah the part here where the twin of his previous dead girl's <laughs> girlfriend slash wife shows up and just starts sobbing for no particular reason, and then wants to kill herself. Played by Ellen Barkin. And you're just like, what in the world? And then like they don't actually tell you that that's that she looks like the other girl. And one of the the guys say to each one of the guys say to each other, and they're like, God looks just like her, doesn't it? And you're just like, who? What's happening? Yeah. <laughs> and you get the feeling that something was cut out because something was cut out in the deleted scenes. There's a whole bit where you find out. Uh, Penny, who's Ellen Barkin's character in this movie, Penny Pretty, is, you know, like you said, the twin sister of Buckaroo's wife. No. Yeah, Buckaroo's wife, Peggy. They were married? Oh, okay. Buckaroo's wife, Peggy. They were married for one night. She was murdered on their wedding night by... Hanoi Jan. <laughs> and when he tells Peggy this in the deleted scene, he tells Penny this in the deleted scene, he says, you know, I had a wife. Uh, she was your sister. I married her. And she died... And she was murdered by Hanoi Jan. And, and Penny says, Hanoi Jan, the, the head of the world crime league, the guy from the comic books? And Buckaroo is just loading his gun and he looks, he sights his gun and rolls the barrel and says, nope, not the guy in the comic books. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good line. I wish they'd kept good. it in because this is the guy who murdered his wife. But yeah. They don't go into detail. It's, it's completely excised from the movie and we didn't get to watch it at all. Well, they should have excised the entire thing with the sister it was all so weird and then like they sort of get together I get what you're saying no sort of get together they get together I mean it's not ambiguous at the end they're yeah, making out at the fair. end but you're just like 
I don't, I don't think that's okay, man. Well, I'll, I'll say now what I said to you at the time we were watching it, which is <laughs> that if she's the identical twin of your dead wife, she's kind of your wife. It's, it's. <laughs> that's not. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's common law. Well, it's like in uh, Western times, <laughs> you know, if your brother died, you would marry his wife. You know, that was just because she you needs did to be to, taken to take care, care of. of, right? Sure. So this is maybe. Uh, well, my wife died. I need to take care of her twin sister, who he has had no interactions with. It's not like he knows her and is like, "I love her too." He has no idea who this woman is. He's he spent two seconds with her, and she. At this dive club, she's crying in the in the crowd, and she takes out a gun and tries to kill herself because she's really depressed and drunk. He's really into that. And somebody jars her elbow, and the gun goes the gunshot goes wide. Everyone thinks she tried to take a shot at Buckaroo. Oh, I thought she lost her nerve and still no, pulled the trigger. she was going to she was going to pull it. She put it up to her temple, and somebody jostles past her and knocks her elbow, and the the gun goes wild. Oh, I, th- I thought she just lost her nerve and wasn't going to kill herself. And it's a great scene because everyone thinks someone took a shot at Buckaroo and everybody on stage who was playing an instrument Draws whips out a gun. <laughs> the drummer has an Uzi from behind the drums, the drum set and he just stands up. We never see the drummer again. He's, I don't know if he was like, he was just, just hired the, for, you know, you can't always take like drums with you. Sometimes you'll get like a local guy. Yeah, I guess. If you can keep a beat and your music's not complicated, <laughs> um, they she she goes to jail, but for some reason they decide uh, Buckaroo decides. Uh, you know, she looks like she my dead wife under my responsibility. Looks like my dead wife. Like, I'm gonna take her home. Okay. Yeah, you belong to we're, me now. Yeah, we're cool with that. I got you out of jail, and now <laughs> you are mine. Weird. Um, and he makes poor Perfect Tommy give her his his coat. Perfect Tommy, by the way, is a another great character. This this. Guy who looks, I don't know, would you say like Duran Duranish kind yeah, of? Yeah, sure. Very, he's always wearing these amazing, very 80s rock star outfits. Um, again, I found out in the book that Perfect Tommy is a, uh, um, what's the word? He's like a, he's like a. An android? A, a, a aerojet engineer. He, okay. he designed the jet car, which is why during the jet car test, Perfect Tommy's leaning back, and they're like, he's going 300, 400, 500 miles an hour. And, and Perfect Tommy's just going, just be cool. She'll hold. Because he designed the car. Yeah. But you don't know that in the movie. No, they never tell you. They never tell you anything. But he, he wears these great outfits. You know, sometimes he wears nothing but the jacket, the leather jacket with no shirt on. <laughs> Platinum blonde hair, very Spike from Buffy uh, kind of look. Um, looks fantastic. Um, Perfect, even. Yeah. They have a press conference, and Buckaroo's going to explain to the rest of the world, hey, I've pierced the eighth dimension, here's how it works. For some reason, they bring Penny with them, and she sits up on the dais. <laughs> when she gets up on the dais, you're like, why is she there? Why is she there? And, you know, you've got Buckaroo, you've got the Hong Kong Cavaliers, fine, but you've also got the Secretary of Defense, and you've got uh, the Governor, and you've got... The woman they just got out of jail, she's, she's put up there, and she's she could have sat anywhere. But um, The place is attacked by Yo-Yo Dine employees who try to steal the overthruster. Buckaroo gets a phone call from the president that turns out to not be from the president. Yeah, it's from the other Planet 10 aliens who zap him in the ear through the phone, and he then has the ability to see the aliens. Yeah, and 
not only does he see he, very, he also like, gets they live sort of situation. He also gets sort of like a a, a compressed packet of information. Yeah, he, gets a, he gets a full download because yeah. he knows like they're from Planet Ten and through from yeah. the Eighth Dimension. Like, he knows that all this, he just fucking yells it at the press yeah. Conference. He basically vomits like, this information. Yeah. And, and and everyone in the press conference is like, well, if Bakarubazai said it, it must be true. Yeah. Including us, the audience, and we're like, okay, I guess. Nobody nobody thinks he's insane when he jumps up from behind the podium and says, evil, pure and simple from the eighth dimension. <laughs> Red Lectroids, get them. And, you know, the Cavaliers are standing around like, who is he pointing at? The, the guy in the blue suit? I mean, I just see Christopher Lloyd. By the way, Christopher Lloyd plays one of the Lectroids, John Big Booty. That whole scene was super weird because it was all new information to us as well. And so we think he's crazy, but no one on screen is reacting that way. Yeah. But we need a little bit more information there, or a little bit less information from him. But I guess maybe it's just like you said. Everyone is so in awe of Buckaroo that they think something must be wrong with them because they're not seeing what he's seeing. Well, what I'm saying is either he should have been crazy... <laughs> Or he shouldn't have yelled that. Or we should have known he was telling the truth. Or a man with this kind of intelligence should have realized how it was going to yeah, sound. Yeah, he shouldn't have said. He should have just said like, "By the way, I didn't yell this in front of everybody because it would have sounded <laughs> amazingly stupid." But these are red electroid electroids. Yep. There's other electroids. They're all from Planet Ten. It's this whole thing. Yeah. But they don't really do that at all. Nope. And just a quick word on the red electroids. Um, more stars. You got Christopher Lloyd as John Big Booty, who is. Big, he keeps telling everyone who calls him Boutet. John Big Booty, it's Big Boutet. Tay. Big Boutet. Um, his character, throughout the film, while he takes orders from John Lithgow's character, John, uh, Lord John Warfin, he takes his orders, but he's always like giving Warfin the finger behind his back. <laughs> yeah, he hates And him. he hates him, but he, he does what he's told. In the book, you find out that the reason he hates Warfin so much is that the whole time Warfin's been incarcerated in the home for the criminally insane in New Jersey, he's had to run the Yoyodyne company. And not only did he run it, he made it really successful. <laughs> and he's like on, he's like Fortune 500. He's on the, the cover of Forbes magazine. He's doing really well. But when John Warfin escaped from the insane asylum and says, now we have to do this crazy scheme of mine, everybody just hops to and does it because he's the leader. Yeah. And John Bigfoot is like, I had a really good, I was a capitalist. I had a good thing yeah. going. He'd sort of bought the... Should've just stuck around? Yeah, well, he'd sort of bought into the American dream and was sort of living it, and... He is so well. Yeah. Another, um... Uh, Lectroid, Red Lectroid, is, uh... John Gomez, who... I... I recognize him as Nick Tortelli from Cheers. He was Carla's husband on Cheers, if you ever watched Cheers. Um, and then you have... John O'Connor, who... Again, I didn't bother looking up the names, but John O'Connor is the subway train ghost from Ghost. <laughs> the guy who teaches him how to move stuff with his mind and actually yeah, affect yeah, yeah. the physical world. That actor is one of those actors who is, he's got a face that is, you know, he's not a handsome man, but his face is so distinct that you always immediately go, that guy. Yeah. And cult films, I think, he are looks full like of, a ghost. Yeah. Cult films, I think, are full of that guy. Yeah, um, the you know the cast of um, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show comes to mind. Like almost everybody in the castle is that guy. I've never seen. You never seen Rocky Horror? No. Yeah, it's worth giving a giving a look to. Um, it's. I'm gonna have to see a couple movies in between before I jump yeah. from uh, 
Bananas cult movies and bananas cult movies. Well, you thought this movie was crazy. That movie has... <laughs> that movie's a musical and crazy. So it's like another ratchet up. Yeah. Um, fair warning. Uh, you know, Bucker gives chase and, and now we're trying to stop the Red Electroids. The Red Electroids kidnap Professor Akita because he's obviously the brains behind piercing the dimensional barrier. Uh, he... Is- is that obvious, though? Because clearly, Buckaroo is the superstar that has been... Like, Akito was involved in That's all I'm saying. failed attempt. That's all like, I'm saying. It was his... It was his dream. He, 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 he was just the concept man. Yeah, I just... I don't get why they kidnapped him at all. All they really needed was the, um... The oscillator. The oscillator, yeah. Well, they, they, I think they tried to get it, but he had already They just didn't try that hard. And then no. Off. He handed it to, uh... To Penny... To this random girl he just met and bailed out of jail. jail. Yeah. Uh, they kidnap Professor Akita, so Bonsai gives chase. And once Bonsai's in pursuit of them, um, who he now recognizes as being aliens, he pursues them, and we get another aspect of this amazing pulp character, which is his, his nationwide, possibly international support group, the Blue Blazer <laughs> Regulars. <laughs> And I love this whole concept. There's um, the Blue Blazer regulars, basically, are these people all over the country, maybe the world, who are basically like, the like fan club. they're like the fan club, but they're more than a fan club because they can be called it. They're the Army Reserve yes, fan club. They have to monitor certain radio frequencies all the time and be on hand whenever he's in your neck of the woods and he needs your help. You better be ready to respond and help Buckaroo. And that's what they do. They put the call out to, who, what blue blazes do we have in the area? And they put the call out, Buckaroo's in trouble. Who can help? Who's in this particular area? Yeah. And two dudes who are just like at a... Well, it's a helicopter pilot. It's a helicopter pilot and his son, Casper and Scooter Lindley. <laughs> blue blazer regular number 44 yeah, and a half or whatever it is. They dial in and they get, all right, you got the green light. You got to go save Buckaroo. And it reminds me of this great comic book. I don't know if you ever read it. It was almost a TV show. Went to pilot, didn't get, didn't get made. But it was a comic book by Warren Ellis called Global Frequency. Did you ever hear yeah. this? Check it out. It's really worth reading. Global Frequency uh, was basically, the idea was, what if um, like the CIA or spy agency was not constricted to work for the government, but was um, basically just run by the people for the people. So there's this woman named Miranda Zero. She has a network of people all over the world, experts in various fields, and they are on what they call the global frequency. And what she does is, because of all these contacts she has, and all these all, all these ins she has all over the world, she's able to finance people who are like, let's say, you know, you have great ideas uh, for particle physics, or you, you're going to pursue this amazing new cure for cancer or whatever. Okay. She will help put up money for you to do that, and in return, she gives you this beeper. And you have to keep this beeper on you. And you may never have this beeper go off. It may You may live out your life, receive your Nobel Prize, never have this beeper go off. But at some point, the beeper might go off. If the beeper goes off, the only thing you have to do in, rega- in exchange for all this that you've been given is answer the call and help in whatever way Miranda tells you. And that's the global frequency. So every issue had to do with Miranda Zero being in some weird you know, espionage situation where she's you know, trying to stop a, a nuke from being detonated in some city somewhere in the world, she checks her database and finds that there's somebody on the global frequency in this college here next door to where I am. She presses the button, the guy's beeper goes off, and 
he answers the phone. It's not a beeper. It's a, it's a cell phone. Yeah. He answers the phone, and he says, "Hello." This is it's never gone off before. This, so they always sound very nervous when they answer, like "Hello." And she says, first thing she always says is, "You're on the global frequency," and this is what I need you to do. And they have to go do it. So that's very much what this situation is. That would have been a tough TV show because you'd have new characters all the time. But yes, yeah. the only the only single repeating character I think in the TV show was Miranda Zero, mm-hmm. and everybody else was just a rotating cast of whoever. Um, but anyway, Blue Blazer regulars work the same way, and I, I love the idea of it. When Casper and his father save Buckaroo, who's like on a motorcycle chasing Electroids, the Electroids are gonna run him down with a truck. I'll be damned if if. Back to the Future didn't steal this too. A ladder falls down yeah. from the sky, and Buckaroo jumps on it, and it pulls him away. And there's a helicopter with a ladder that just flies him to safety. And I thought, that's son of a bitch. That's that's uh, Back to the Future Part Two. Yep, that's the DeLorean in the fifties saving Marty on the hoverboard. They were fans. Yeah, like they were maybe watching that movie a little too closely. I think. <laughs> um, I also love that the you know the, Buckaroo works out of the Bonsai Institute. And it's somewhere, it looks like it's somewhere in Los Angeles. Um, and it's got these big gates out front, and out front of the gates are all these, like, groupies. And these are just kids who are, like, hoping to get a glimpse of him as he comes and goes <laughs> from his house. Yeah. This is, like, a major scientific institute, and they're all just, like, camped out there every night, all night. You see, like, kids with blankets spread out over the hoods of their cars and just, like, making out, like, just hoping he'll come home sometime. And it's great because it's like, this must be what it's like outside of, you know, Keith Richards' house or something, or, you know, maybe not Keith Richards these days, but, uh, yeah. but you know, yeah, Kanye, whoever. Um, but it's great. I love the idea of groupies hanging out the outside of the Institute. Keith Richards, you're so old. Um, it's at the Institute that Jeff Goldblum's character, who was the neurosurgeon from the beginning, is now asking everyone to call him New Jersey, because <laughs> it just sounds, his real name is like Dr. Sidney Zweibel. Yeah. But he wants everyone to call him New Jersey because he wants to be a cool Hong Kong cavalier like the other guys yeah. and have a cool nickname and be like a superhero like everybody else. Um, they humor him. They call him New Jersey. I always get the impression like they're all smirking a little when they say it, but they call well, him After New a while, that'll just be it. Sure. Everybody saves each other's lives and that's your name. Yeah. I love that when he meets the Hong Kong cavaliers, he, <laughs> he gets all their names wrong. He's like... I'm a big fan of yours. You're Pecos. Sergeant's like, no, Pecos is in Tibet, man. I'm Reno. He's like, oh, well, you're Pecos. No, I'm perfect Tommy. <laughs> Just goes through them all. Um, back at the Institute, New, um, Sydney, Sydney slash New Jersey figures out that the reason all these yo-yo dying propulsion system guys don't show up in the social security database until uh, October 31st, 1938 is because of the strange thing that happened on that date, which was the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah, yeah, the, the like, that, but that was not the day that Warfin got stuck halfway through. It must have been when Warfin brought everyone else. So they never at actually... At a later date. We, I don't know that we got a date for the original science experiment. They never actually tie it all together, but from what I, I have to theorize is sometime shortly before Halloween, maybe a day or two before Halloween... Yeah. The Warfin experiments happen, or the, the Lizardo experiment happens. Warfin comes back through, he's, he's basically riding inside of Emilio Lizardo's body, runs off on his whatever crime spree, and somehow manages to reopen, widen yeah. that explosive rift in the eighth dimension that he was able to sneak out in, and he gets all his other guys out uh, on Halloween. 
And then, according to the theory of this movie, Orson Welles does his War of the Worlds broadcast and tells everybody that the Martians are invading. So that means they must have come through not only themselves, but came through with giant tripod machines (laughs) that were spewing death rays. Yeah, that that part didn't quite... uh, Laying waste to huge... I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, Orson Welles broadcast, have you? Uh Huh. You can usually get it at like any library. You could probably get it online easy uh, these days. Uh, I remember I did a project on it when I was uh, back in middle school, and I got it at the library. But it's really interesting to listen to. It's a really cool radio play. Hmm. And the way they do it is um, you hear lots of you know big band music. We now go to Johnny Lazar and his whatever orchestra at the yeah. Boom Boom Room in New York City to bring you the finest. And they play this music, and they'll play it, and they'll play it, and they'll play it. And then... We break into this music to bring you the finest, the you know, the, this information. And they say, Princeton Observatory is saying there's some sort of strange lights in the sky. And it's very curious. But we now return to Johnny Lazar and his boom boom room. And they go back and they go back and forth like this. But they keep breaking in more and more and more. And as the reports get longer and longer until eventually it becomes like people are being advised to leave their homes immediately and get on the interstate. But avoid this interstate, get on this interstate. And it just becomes really, it's a really psychologically well done production. Check it out. It's cool. It's really cool. My, uh, my brother, Sean, he took um, um, sampling from that broadcast. And uh, my brother's a musician. He, uh, he made a song called Grover's Mill. And he, he sampled, uh, you know, people from that broadcast just like running and screaming as the Martian death rays were <laughs> firing down and... Yeah, it was it was really cool. I, I liked that a lot. But um, I don't know how believably it plays as the exa- the the excuse for getting these. Yeah, the cover for these guys. But then again, it plays as believably as anything else in this movie. Sure. Nothing. Nothing really ties off and makes great sense. <laughs> um, including the very premise that he can maintain all these different um, careers and still like breathe. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can be an amazing, accomplished scientist, but you're going to stay mostly in the field of scientific I, I even give endeavor. you that you could be an amazing, accomplished scientist and, like, lead a rock band. Yeah. But you can't do three other things, too. Yeah. You can't also be a test pilot. Which is what makes him so superhuman. Yes. Um, Buckaroo tries to let the president know that aliens are invading... For some reason, the president is... He's in traction, like yeah. in the hospital. You're just like, what's happening? They never tell you. And if they told you it in the book... It must have been in a different... If they told you in the book, I don't remember what the explanation was. Because, but we never find out in the movie. No, he the president is like upside down for most of the movie. Yeah, and, and Buggeroo starts his talk with him like, I know your back's killing you, Sarah, but we got to discuss these aliens invading. Uh, the president is just kind of really clueless. He doesn't know what to make of all these rambling aliens invading things yeah. that are coming out. But he says words like... I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to make of this buggeroo. Lectroids? Planet 10? A girl named John? <laughs> Race wars in New Jersey? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah. The leader of the good black Lectroids is a girl named John. John Emdahl. Yeah. Um, the black Lectroids, all of them, are Rastafarian. And there's a reason for this that they don't tell you in the movie. 
The reason for this that they tell you in the book is that when the black electroids uh, arrived over Earth, um, they arrived in synchronous orbit over Jamaica. And they scanned Jamaica, and they picked up a lot of Rastafarian images, culture, music, and they just assumed that was planet-wide. And went with it. And that was it. So that's every black electroid is Rastafarian. Fair enough. That's how they talk. They think everyone talks like that. When they get down here, they don't understand why everyone's a little different in their speech patterns than they are. Okay. But it is a race war. <laughs> just not that race. Different races. Black and red electroids. Uh, the, the Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers decide that... Uh, uh, they got to do what's what's right and stop John Morphin and his buddies from using the oscillation overthruster, which they got when they somehow kidnapped Penny. Well, it's funny. They don't actually decide that that's what needs to be stopped. They're the black electroids threatened to blow up Earth unless they stop them. Because if you really think about it, like what do we care if John Morphin leaves? You're right. So, yeah, John Emdahl tells them basically, look, we can't allow this war criminal to come back to our planet yeah but you gotta leave him here like, they, they actually say he's worse than Hitler <laughs> yeah they, they use they play that yeah. card he's like you're Hitler yeah. and he's like what? it's like and I thought he doesn't, I mean he's crazy but I thought even in, in space yeah. do you have to go right to Hitler <laughs> we do that way too often down here I mean Hitler is kind of on the extreme but anyway um, they basically tell him we won't allow him to come back so if he comes back or if it looks like he's going to pierce the dimensional barrier and come back, we're going to blow up Earth to stop that from happening. Um, but because we're such good guys, we're going to give you till, what was it, sundown? To, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't long. It was like yeah. four hours. We're going to give you till sundown to neutralize the threat. And if you can prove to us that there's no way he's coming, we'll back off and not. What they were going to do actually was, uh, Adam, they were going to fire a, a, a nuke at uh, Swilinsk or something. Oh, yeah, they were going to set off World War Three. Yeah, and then Russia would fire back and the world would be destroyed. Good guys. Yeah. These nice. are the good guys. Yeah, I guess. Um, so the gang splits into two teams to attack Yo-Yo Dai. It's like, if you have that kind of power, you can't just deal with Warfin? Really? <laughs> Although, they, they, they may have a lot of power, but they don't seem to know how to apply tactically yeah. apply it. I mean, even when they arrived on Earth, they made a lot of assumptions really quickly that turned out to not be true. So. Also, they sent one guy to help. Yeah. Well, they sent a three-man team, and only one guy got out of it. Uh, that's fair, but still, like... They told the guy who was inside... This guy, if this is Hitler, yeah. I gotta think we're sending more than a three-soldier team. They sent a three-soldier team, one of them falls out and dies immediately. Falls out of the pod and dies, just getting out of the ship. Just hits his head on a rock. <laughs> One of them escapes and goes to find Bugger Banzai, and the other one is trapped inside. The red electroids show up and are going to steal him and the ship, so he's told, up. he's told to destroy himself, and he does it. You knew this was a one-way ticket. Wow. Rush. The, the, the black electroids are really rough in their, in their policies. Um, so the gang splits into two strike teams, including 10-year-old Scooter Lindley. Blue Blaze a regular 44 and a half. Yeah, he's given a assault rifle and told to join strike team number two. And he they, does just fine. He does really fine, actually, yeah. but no one has a problem with this. I also love, this is more of the extended in-universe network that Buckaroo has in place, because when they're deciding who they want on these strike teams, Perfect Tommy's like, do I call in the Blue Blazer regular strike team or what? 
Buckaroo says, no, let's keep this intimate. And he says something like, call uh, the Kalodney brothers and get the Rudsuckers over here. And you're like, who are these people? <laughs> but you see later on a van that says, Rugsuckers cleaning. <laughs> we clean dirt the old-fashioned way. And that parks outside the, the tour bus. And two guys in, like, yellow coveralls get out of the, the van. And they're, they're, like, fully combat geared up, ready to join. So that must be the Rugsuckers. Who knows who the Kalodney brothers are? They didn't make it. I guess they were probably on the chopping room floor at the end of the movie. Who knows? Um, and they have to go get the overthruster back from Electroids, and they have to save Penny, who's been kidnapped meantime. Um, I was really unclear why the Electroids were torturing Penny. So, what do they want out of her? They wanted to find out uh, what she knew about the overthruster because they didn't realize she had it in her purse. So it was in her purse the entire time. It was time in her purse. They were torturing. Which I have to, I have to point out, Brent was a clear plastic purse. <laughs> it it was made of clear plastic. You could see a small notebook in there and some makeup and stuff, and the oscillation overthruster. <laughs> they never look in her purse, and they don't Oops. realize they have the very object that they want Buckaroo to deliver to them. So Buckaroo realizes they don't realize it, because they call him to ransom Penny. And he says, all right, uh, I'll, I'll give you what you want. You just leave her alone. Meanwhile, they're torturing Penny in some bizarre ways. They're covering her in honey and putting fire ants on her. <laughs> Later on, you see uh, her strapped down on a table and a tarantula on a ramp. is No, the tarantula's moving up her thigh. And then in a still later scene, she's strapped to this table and there's this um, alien creature that's on a ramp that is slowly moving towards her that's going to do some sort of damage to yeah, her. Yeah, who does? But she has a lot of creatures torturing her. It's, she doesn't know anything. She's not a scientist. She doesn't have the overthruster on her. No, she's first. the she's the like epitome of a damsel in distress. Yeah. Always showing as much leg as possible. She shows a lot of leg. She does a lot of writhing. <laughs> yes. Like, every time you see her, she can't sit still. She has to writhe and grind and move I just those imagine legs. the director being like, not enough writhing, do it again! <laughs> Poor Ellen it's Barkin. Like, oh, man. I mean, Ellen Barkin, she looks great in the movie, but she, the character was just empty. Yeah. Uh, she has a great line. I think I think you like this line, too. God, she should be, like, the only female character? I guess... Oh, uh, maybe. I guess the black lectroid leader is also a girl, but, like, that's kind of it. <laughs> She has this great line. I, I can't remember it exactly, but she says something to Buckaroo like, You're like Jerry Lewis. You give me hope, but then you leave me in the lurch. <laughs> and we're like, Jerry Jerry Lewis? Okay. Did he give everyone hope? I, I don't really understand the reference. I, I don't know. <sighs> but anyway. Um, it sounds like a reference that was probably old at the time. Yeah, I'm assuming it was. Um... When they attack Yo-Yo Dine, they see all those great signs. A growing excited company. Yeah. Uh, they find their, they sort of worm their way into the underbelly of Yo-Yo Dine propulsion systems. And inside, it's all just really gross and dirty. And there's like, it's like dirty water all over the floors everywhere. <laughs> and there's like piles of like sponge cake food for some reason. I guess this <laughs> is what the Electroids eat. Um... In fact, at one point, the Secretary of Defense, who has snuck into Yo-Yo Dine independently of the Hong Kong Cavaliers because he wants to basically uh, obtain the overthruster for the U.S. government, 
he wants to get it from Banzai because he's like, I don't believe in this hippie Banzai and his yeah. his radical foreign agent crew. I want this. To be for... fair, he did lose it to a bunch of alien invaders. That's true. Um, but he wants to find it for himself. He he makes his way into the the belly of Yoyodyne, and I guess he's still not really buying the whole they're aliens from outer space thing. He doesn't have the breathing apparatus that was built for the Hong Kong Cavaliers so they could all see the aliens. Yeah. He's just seeing people. And these are people that have defense contracts with the U.S. government. He's worked with these people on, like, their truncheon. They say, yeah. this is the outfit that's working on our truncheon bomber. Yeah. Yeah, he meets uh, Butte and is like, I want to see that bomber. Yeah. Um, and he looks around at all of this disgusting mess that is the <laughs> underside of, of Yo-Yo Daddy. He says the hell is this don't you have any damn pride and john bigwoody grabs him by the throat lifts him up and he gives an excuse that i totally buy which is he says it's not my damn planet understand <laughs> monkey boy <laughs> and drops him and i thought so they're living in this squalor as sort of a like they're just leaving all their trash everywhere because to yeah, them this is just somebody else's house somebody else's problem we're just here very temporarily until we can get back to the real place that we belong and take it over we're, we're going to conquer planet 10 oh by the way in the book you find out red electroids were it's basically the uh, uh, super soldiers con from Star Trek thing. Uh, they were right. basically designed by the black electroids to be their warriors and then they fought all their wars and succeeded and then they wanted to rule the, the world, and they had to be sent to the Phantom Zone. Whoops. Yeah. How many times have we seen that happen in the fictional histories, Brent? At least twice. When will we fictionally learn? Um, well, I guess that's a little Blade Runner-y as well. It's a little Blade Runner-y. It's a little Superman-y. It's a little uh, Star Trek-y. It's a little Buckaroo Banzai-y. Yeah. Uh, we're doomed to repeat it. Um... So they basically are, are trying to take out as many electroids underneath Yoyodine as they can, get the oscillation overthruster back. The president, meanwhile, is being pressured to sign Declaration of War, the short form. <laughs> yeah, it's just like three lines. It actually says at the top, Declaration of War, the short form, uh, because Russians gone and to it's like... stuff like that that makes me think these people knew what they were doing, making such a bananas movie, but otherwise it takes itself so seriously. The thing is... It's a bananas movie with lots of bananas lines and bananas signage, but the characters who live in that universe never realize they all take how it very seriously. Yeah, and I think that a lot of great comedies work like that. You can be as over the top as you want to be, as long as the character doesn't realize that it's not business as but usual. But there's just so few of these fourth wall break comedy things, and like, it's not a funny movie. Not exactly. It's a fun movie. Sure, it's fun, but it's. It's not a comedy. No, I wouldn't say so. But that being said, it's still, you know, hilarious in parts. You can be a, a funny, you can have a lot of funny stuff and not be a funny movie, I sure. guess. Sure, yeah. Or if you can't, this movie sure tries. <laughs> um, anyway, they basically, you know, the assault goes as you think it's going to go. They shoot a bunch of aliens. They work their way to where they need to be. Warfin never does get the the uh, oscillation he over. Just thinks this, he's just like, well, let's do it anyway. He basically says when he realizes that the compound's been invaded by the Hong Kong Cavaliers, he basically says, "We got to get out of here." Big Rudy tells him <laughs> in a in a great line. He says, 
It's never going to work. Your overthrusters for crap. <laughs> or for shit or something like that. And uh, he says, no, no, I won't go home. Home is where you wear your hat. <laughs> uh, he, he shouts to his assembled minions in the, in the pit crews. He says, where are we going? And they yell, planet 10. He says, when? And they all yell, real soon. <laughs> uh, they get into the ship that they've been building. And, and I assume that rather than building this truncheon bomber for the U.S., they've been funneling the... The funds. Yeah, those funds into building this. To build our return to Planet 10 ship. And so there's a big mothership that they're going to get in, on board and hopefully fly to the eighth dimension if they can just cross the dimensional barrier. Um, and I love that there's this thing in the ship that's, you know, we have these great seats and, and straps that hold us in and protect us and maybe a harness or something for something like this. What they have is these like concrete vests that are hanging on bungee cords. Yeah. So you put your arms through the sleeves of the vest that's dangling from the ceiling, and then you just dangle on a bungee cord. <laughs> and that way, if the ship goes in any direction, you just bob and weave as the <laughs> ship changes its orientation. Sure, that why seems not? Brilliant. Um, but of course, they can't make the the dimensional barrier crossing device work because they don't have the crucial missing circuit that Buckaroo was able to determine. And they end up, instead of going through the dimensional barrier at the door of their warehouse that they're flying towards, they just break through the warehouse and fly into the sky. And now they're just in the atmosphere, which is not where they want to be. Buckaroo ends up shooting them down with one of their own escape pods. and The day is saved. Tell uh, and parachutes down out of it. You said he parachuted down from, what did it look like to you? Oh, it was like 30,000 feet. <laughs> like, even if he had oxygen and he would be, you know, alive when he reached the bottom, it would take hours. It yeah. would take forever for him to get down. Because he yeah. won't shoot. He's above clouds. It's like, no, dude, <laughs> you're too high. What are you doing? Yeah, it, it did seem kind of crazy. Um, which, which, in a movie like this, it's fine. I'm not worried about it. I'll tell you a little something. This may be too much information, uh, personal information for you, but I have gone skydiving, and I, you know, we pulled the chute at, at a certain point. And yes. one thing they don't tell you is they're very they're very careful to tell you. You know, I, I was tied to somebody. Obviously, I wasn't crazy enough to you jump did the out. Tandem, yeah. I did the tandem jump, and they they're very careful in the class beforehand. They tell you you know how to land. You want to you know keep running as you land. You know and and moving. It all seems very good, but they never told me how much it was going to hurt when the chute opened. And the, oh, reason, yeah. the reason it hurts it is because parts. it jerks all your parts. It's like getting the biggest wedgie you ever had because you have a harness strapped around your crotch and your shoulders and your chest. Yep. You better and hope that thing's yank, tight. When that chute opens up, man, it's something. I don't know how Buckaroo did it. He, he, I didn't even see him open the chute, but he, he floated gently down as if he owned the skies. <laughs> Um, and then he he finds that Penny is like dying because of all the torture. She's she's been brutally too many, too many ant bites. I mean the ants and the tarantula and whatever the alien creature was between all of that. Tarantulas it was, don't kill. Don't okay. they? Have, do they have some sort of poison or something? Like they their just, bite? They like shoot hairs in your eyes. They don't like kill you. I'm not sure that's accurate. That's all they do. Can we get a fact check on that? <laughs> um. But she's dying, and, and New Jersey is unable to do anything for her, uh, even though he said he'd made sure she pulled through when Buckaroo shows up. 
New Jersey says, I couldn't do anything for her. And Buckaroo leans in to kiss her. And something that's been happening throughout the entire film since he got the phone call that downloaded all the information. To oh, him. yeah. So when he touches another people. person, he electric shocks. So he leans in to kiss her dead body. Now he's kissing the corpse of the dead, unknown twin of his dead wife. He just can't keep these girls alive. But when he kisses her, it shocks her awake like a like a defibrillator pad, I guess. And she wakes up, and you see a flashback to the black electroid ships. They're monitoring the situation, and, you, and basically it's like they they somehow sent this charge through him to, to bring her back to life as a gift to Bob. Thanks, guys. And I don't mo- know this lady. The movie <laughs> ends on this really weird note, which is Buckaroo and Penny kissing. And the camera pans back up to the black electroid ship, and one of the black electroid one of the black electroids says, "So what? Big deal." And that's the end of the movie. And I'm like, "Are you saying that about the whole movie?" So what? Big deal. I don't know. Maybe that's the soundbite. I don't know. It was good. Um, you know, it's it's a weird ending, but it's interesting. But the the best part of this movie, what I love about it, is that after it ends, there's still another thing to go on. There's the end credits strut. Yeah, they're like in the L.A. River or something. They, they are just, indeed in the L.A. River, yes. They just fucking just walk around. They are, uh, let's see. It's not, uh, not necessarily in sync, but like definitely to a beat. <laughs> so you get this sign that comes up after the, after the end scene that says, Watch for the next adventure of Buckaroo Banzai. Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. And we're like, oh my god, yes, that, that'd be great, World Crime League. But it, it never occurred, obviously. Um, and you and I were, were thinking, did they ever intend to actually make a sequel? Or is that just really Yeah, just really on? leaning into the pulpiness of it. Because if I'm making this movie and it's like my passion project, I might throw that in just to be like, just to like to pressure somebody to ask for this movie. You know, like if anybody, if anybody liked the movie... Then they could go to the studio and be like, when is that next one coming well, just out? just because, you know, it clearly draws so much from these, like, 27-part series. You know, the that series, like, yeah. Yeah, that, like, of course there would be another one. Yeah. Based just, on what this is. Like, no, we're never going to make it. But, like, this is the epitome of that. And so yeah. it should have its... It's just like all the old sequel. Flash Gordons or Buck Rogers that they used to show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much in, the, in that vein. Um, so I had the boys in the lab... Look into the sequel that never did was. They try? So apparently, Sherwood Studios really did plan on making a sequel if the movie did well enough. They were going to go ahead and do a sequel because they had all this talent involved. Um, which even at 1984, this was still a lot of known talent. These were these were not unknown people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were not huge stars that they would later become. They were people, they were, people still recognize. They them. were getting there. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, two things happened that killed the sequel. One. The film was not successful. <laughs> this movie tanked. If only that hadn't happened. To be fair, there was no advertising for this movie. Like, none. Remember I told you how they went to like a Comic-Con and passed out those bandanas? That was, that was, that was pretty much entire it. marketing budget. They had no money for advertising, so nobody ever sold this to anybody. Uh, two, because the movie did not do well, Sherwood Studios went bankrupt. Whoops. And... Uh, the movie, the rights to this movie and to the characters and all that stuff ended up in litigation for like ever. And that was it. Nothing ever happened. So then the end sequence is shot at the Sepulveda Dam. Sepulveda Dam, as you said. Um, and I thought it was interesting how they're all strutting out, not quite in sync, as you said. <laughs> they're all wearing their this finest clothes. Everyone's going to walk around. The, the music is really cool. 
they're walking to this to this song, and it's this um, it's like the Buckaroo Banzai theme. In fact, earlier you you saw also you definitely heard this theme when we started the podcast. Yes. Oh yeah, I hope so. Um, and it's a cool song. I really like the Buckaroo Banzai theme. It's also something that New Jersey is playing on the piano when he's back at the bunkhouse. Just kind of fiddling yeah, just with the like, piano. Hmm. this theme. By the way, um, Jeff Goldblum does actually play piano. Not only does he play it, he's like an expert concert pianist. Talk about being good at more than one thing. Yep. He, he actually, has like a jazz band he plays He with. has a regular gig here in, in LA. In town, yeah. Like every like Tuesday night when he's not filming something, he and his, his band just hang out and play at this club. And I'm dying to go see him. Yeah, I'd love to go, but he's way too cool for me. I, w- I wouldn't want to meet him. I would, I would love to meet him. I, I have the I want to meet him. I don't want to be the guy that meets him. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> you like, want to oh, watch the guy that meets oh, him. Oh, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, my God. You're the best. It's like, I don't want to be that guy, man. See, That's, he doesn't want that. I, I don't want that. I would totally be okay meeting him because I get the feeling he is way too cool for me. But he is so cool that he would make me feel totally comfortable around him. Maybe. And I wouldn't make an idiot of myself. Maybe. Maybe. Although I make an idiot of myself in a fairly drop of a hat, so <laughs> maybe that's too much to hope for. Um, but when they were filming this scene at the Sepulveda Dam where they're all strutting around to the Buckaroo Banzai theme, the Buckaroo Banzai theme was not ready. And so the, the director tells them all to dance to, to, to walk to Uptown Girl by Billy Joel. <laughs> because it uses the exact same tempo as the theme that they eventually get into the film. So that's what they're all walking to. They're walking to Uptown Girl by Billy Joel. Oh my god. I, it would be so great if you could notice people like mouthing it or <laughs> oh something. Gosh. Like that would have been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that is truly the end of the film um, in all of its glory. And around this Thankfully. time... <laughs> around this time uh, on the podcast, we ask ourselves, is this property worth another go around? If so, how would you do it? What would you change? Brent. I did not like this movie. <laughs> well, besides the fact that you're clearly wrong, please elaborate. Okay, so I didn't say it wasn't good and it didn't have things. It's definitely a cult hit. I like we talked about this at the very beginning about it checking all the boxes yeah. for that perfect cult movie. Yeah. But like I'm not in the stage of my life where I'm like into cult stuff, so it hasn't like I'm not enamored with its just bananas uniqueness or any of that so like it's it uh it was a big miss like see i first saw it in my early 20s maybe that's a better time to that's watch a great it. time for that man yeah maybe that's why it hit me so well maybe maybe that maybe i'm trying to i'm trying to think of a similar movie around that time for me like donnie darko or something i've not like, seen donnie darko yet well, it was not in the 80s, so we can't see no, it. We no. cannot see that movie. But stay tuned for Luma 90s. <laughs> That's not a 90s it's movie not a 90s either, movie? I don't think. I don't think we can do a Luma Thousands. It doesn't work. A Luma Aughts. <laughs> the Luma Aughts. The Illuminots. Ooh. There we go. We'll just skip straight to that, because the Luma 90s is stupid. Yeah, all right. Illuminots. Agreed. Fine, the Illuminots. So anyway, um, yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't... Let me ask you this. Could you have, this. Could you have seen... 20-something you digging this movie more at the time? Totally, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was very highly influenced by, uh, like, a couple friends of mine that were, like, my tastemakers for, like, music and movies. And if they had been into this, I would have been into it. Okay. Like, that's just kind of how it worked for me at that time. I think that's how it works for everybody at that time. And so, like... You know, that's, like, Three Migos is one of my favorite movies because they were into it and, like, 
I mean, it's a hilarious movie, but I don't know that if I saw it now, I would think it was as funny. Would hold up, yeah. I I was just going to ask because I at the beginning of the podcast I said this is my cult film. Everybody's got one. So would you say I don't know that Three Amigos is a cult film? I would say it is. I mean, if, if it counts of, as a cult film, then that's think my of cult the t- film. the boxes that ticks. Eminently quotable lines, bizarre storyline. But they were. But okay, and actors actors who are but they were already that's famous. true they were already also famous. it's a comedy it is purposely weird all right so if that's not, not that this isn't purposely weird this is a little like hey look at us making a cult movie I think it's just a little like the script the screenwriter couldn't decide couldn't commit to any particular he liked so much of everything he decided to shoot put a very on. wide spectrum yeah why not yeah um, but if it's not three amigos. Let's let's say Three Amigos doesn't count as a cult film. What is your cult film? Do you have one? Uh, I'll have to get back to you on that, man. I didn't. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was told there'd be no homework. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wish the homework had been assigned before <laughs> right this second. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, because as soon as we sign off, they're gonna be like, gonna, "Oh, that's it. right." All right. So if you do think of one, just wait until the whole podcast. Okay. Is I'm gonna over, say it right, and then come right back. I'm here. gonna say it right now. I didn't think of anything. Great choice, Brad. That is Solid a good choice. choice. I really like that choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, this one is this, this is my cold film, as I said. So I I say it's worth another go around. But I well, so the question is, another go around is going to have to be some sort of cult film again, and like not necessarily. I have an idea. Okay, let's hear it. It's not an original idea, but it works. That's okay. So, a little while ago... Those are the best ideas. Yeah. Back in uh, 2016, Kevin Smith uh, of... Kevin Smith fame. Of all the things. Yeah. Yes, of all the things. Talking about a guy who's also good at a bunch of stuff. Um, he was shopping around uh, in 2016 to do a television series of Buckaroo Banzai uh, to the networks and came very close to finalizing a deal with Amazon to do it as a TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, but then MGM filed a lawsuit, uh, and everyone walked away, and it ended up all falling apart. But it seems to me that a TV show would be the perfect format for this property. Because as long as if you did hour-long episodes, and every episode was a full adventure. That's what I would want. Okay. I'd want it to be, like, like serialized as in, like... This each episode is like a little book. So my yeah. idea is a little bit that, but also a little bit ongoing story. So more like X Files, where there were standalone episodes, but there was also an on, ongoing thread. Well, that's just TV now. Okay. So yes. So my idea is um, because TV, you could follow the, the the basics of the film, but also have the benefit of being able to incorporate those standalone episodes to flesh out this incredibly complex world that they live in where they are you know rock stars and they're neurosurgeons and they're race car drivers and they're particle physicists and uh, yeah. they have comic books and there's a world crime league that they're fighting and there are red electroids from another dimension <laughs> and my parents were killed by this crime boss before you know right. when i was five years old and my dead my dead wife has a twin sister and what's that about and how were they separated at birth and you could go into all that kind of stuff much easier in episodic television than you can in a single two-hour film um so like you follow then, okay so then you kind of the the tone of this is very specific like 
I don't know that you can maintain that and actually get into like the lore of Buckaroo Banzai. Like, but you see that the the great part about a TV is you don't have to get into the lore. You can just keep introducing. The, uh, I think what turns this movie off for a lot of people who come into it cold is that it it assumes you will uh, accept a lot of prehistory as given. Like you're you're not given an origin story of Buckaroo Banzai in this movie. You're supposed to jump in and accept that he's had a hell of a lot of life already and a hell of a See, lot of See, that adventures. was one of my favorite things about it. But I think some people are like, I want to watch, you know, like, I want to watch Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. I want to see from page one, Peter Parker, yeah, lose yeah. Uncle Ben, get okay. the powers, get the costume. I want to go on the journey with him. Buckaroo Banzai is like, I'm like 20 years into this my is, journey. Yeah, this is the Dark Knight. Yeah, Buckaroo you're Banzai. joining us in <laughs> media res. This is not, you're not going to get the... But we could go back to, in a, in a television episode, you could go back to when Buckaroo Banzai was five years old. The death of his parents, that, that little two-minute home movie in the beginning of, of what we watched, could be an entire episode. You know what they should do? If you watch The Arrow, yeah. at least the oh, first sure. couple seasons where they do like the flashbacks, they to, should totally to do that. Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of that. And then you can, when he sees Peggy... Sorry, Penny for the first time in the yeah, club. Yeah, then, they, then you start having flashbacks of him with his wife, and then it's not. And you don't even realize she's dead until like the end of the episode. And you're you, like, oh. I think that kind of thing it works a lot better as a well, TV if, show. Well, if the rights to this weren't apparently in a legal nightmare, we could do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it would, I think I think um, something like a Netflix TV show particularly would, would be really great for this, because you can binge something like this great. Yeah. This would be great binge stuff. Um, yeah, I think that would that would work. And you know, learn about learn about Hanoi Jan. All you possibly want to know about Hanoi Jan. And you know, John Big Booty's years at Yo Yo Dine as the CEO and his rise to power and uh, the women he's loved. <laughs> the mini. <laughs> Suddenly he's like Biff from Back to the Future. And we're ga- we're back to Back to the Future again. Always. Damn. That, why is that movie so intrinsically tied up with this movie? It's just kind of strange. It's just intrinsically tied up with life. I guess so. Um, yeah, so that's what I do. I think I think that would work. Well, that's it for this extremely long titled movie. Um, thank you for joining us for this ride in the jet car. Uh, as usual, if uh, you uh, like what you've heard and want to tell your friends about it, we sure would appreciate that. Give us a, a like or a comment on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher, uh, wherever finer podcasts are found. You can send us an email at our email address, which is uh, illuminatespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can head over to our website at illuminatees.rocks. Um, usually at this point in the podcast, I use our sign off, which is uh, we've done our job, Hollywood, now you go do yours. Mm-hmm. But I think in this case, I will leave the folks at home with the words of the immortal Dr. Banzai himself, who said so poignantly, no matter where you go, there you are. There you are. Thanks, everybody. So what? Big deal.